And it took about eight years to build up my collection, including some of the rarest and most valuable cards. And unfortunately, it only took a few minutes for somebody to steal my car, uh, which had all my, my collection stored in it. And, oh, no. Um, you know, at the time, yeah, it, well, they weren't going for the cards, but at the time, the cards, you know, were worth like five or ten thousand dollars. And but today it'd be worth pretty close to a million. Welcome to a bit cryptic podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now it's time to get a bit cryptic. Howdy, cryptonauts. This is Jeff back here again after a little bit of a hiatus. I thank you for your patience. I'm a busy doing the PhD stuff, but I came back from our little retirement to bring on a very special guest and friend, Joe Mahavutivani, who is CEO and co-founder of Mythic Markets. Their company is turning rare pop culture collectibles into publicly traded companies, which is honestly one of the most interesting business ideas I've heard in a long time. And as a super nerd myself, I am very excited to learn more about what you guys do and hear more about how you came up with the idea and how this stuff works. Now, this isn't actually a crypto company, but it is very much related to a lot of recent crypto companies we've seen where people are uh, turning assets, investments into these fractionalized investments. And it's a similar idea to that tokenization we've seen. Um, I'll let Joe talk for himself and explain more because it's really cool. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. So I guess, you know, my background, just really briefly, is, uh, you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area and spent the first 10 years or so of my career in product management and growth at startups of all stages. And before starting Mythic Markets, I spent a little over three years at a seed fund focused on fintech and enterprise SaaS investments. I also hosted a startup podcast called Venture Forth, where I interviewed founders and investors with a focus on blockchain later in its run. So, uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. So how does it feel to be on the interviewee side? Because you're the you're the one who's used to hosting people on your on your podcast. What was it called again? Venture Fortune. Venture Forth. Venture Forth. I'm sorry. Venture Forth. How does it feel to be on the on the interviewee side? Honestly, I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's really the first one I've ever done on this side of the mic. And I unfortunately don't have the good audio for you today. I didn't bring the mic in. But yeah, I mean, I think I'm mostly looking forward to, you know, doing this and not having to spend hours editing it down later. Yeah, you're uh, you're leaving that up to me. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thanks a lot. Takes a lot more work than most people give credit for. Yeah, um, I was pleasant, well, pleasantly and unpleasantly surprised when I first got into this podcasting thing. How much, how much work goes into having a simple conversation with someone? But yep. you know, the best things in life are uh, worth working for. Whatever that saying is, <laughs> there's some saying that has to do with that, right? You've had, you have this interesting background. You, you did. I think I mentioned you mentioned um, you had this background in venture capital, right? Like, how did how did it turn into you deciding one day that I'm going to make a pop culture collectible company that allows people to turn those collectibles into publicly traded companies? Also, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, I've been a longtime collector, investor, and player of a collectible card game called Magic the Gathering. 
it's basically Dungeons and Dragons in card form. And it took me over, uh, you know, I started near the beginning and it took about eight years to build up my collection, including some of the rarest and most valuable cards. And unfortunately, it only took a few minutes for somebody to steal my car, uh, which had all my, my collection stored in it. And, oh, no. Um, you know, at the time, yeah, it, well, they weren't going for the cards, but at the time, the cards, you know, were worth like five or ten thousand dollars. And but today it'd be worth pretty close to a million. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of fantasized about bringing that collection back together ever since. And back then, there was only like four to five million players. But, you know, that changed once the expansion sets were printed in other languages like Italian and German, Japanese and, and a whole bunch of others. But the really valuable stuff was um, never really reprinted and it was only available in English. And so now that there's like 30 million plus players worldwide, you know, the value of these investment grade cards specifically has skyrocketed and basically out of the reach of everybody. And so during the, the venture days, I sat down one day with one of our portfolio company founders, uh, Vinny Lingham of Civic. The crypto world may know him as like Bitcoin Oracle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's very popular and they had one of the first successful like ICOs. You know, I think they're still, you know, moving, moving the ball forward even now. And so we were chatting about our love, uh, Vinny and I's love for collecting rare magic cards. And, you know, at the time I was much more of a crypto enthusiast than I am today. But, uh, you know, we sort of noodled about how tokens backed by our collections could be created and fractionalized and traded, you know, uh, li like the crypto they would be. And so we noticed that magic cards were basically being traded like stocks or tokens already. But most of this activity is really happening sort of at the lower end of the market because just access to expensive cards is out of most people's capacity. You know, in late 2017, crypto was really becoming more popular and flying high. So, you know, I started exploring how like NFTs or the non-fungible tokens might be applied to this model. Um, and obviously, as we know, you know, the bottom kind of fell out in the crypto market in 2018. And so, you know, the, the good times of sort of blockchain and crypto were, I wouldn't say necessarily over, but, um, you know, we, we really wanted to kind of start exploring, you know, the regulatory process for securitization instead, which, you know, we knew that there was a, a way forward for because we'd seen it applied to other alternative assets like art and real estate. And so, you know, it took uh, about eight months and lots of legal fees and, and, you know, working with the SEC to finally get our SEC qualification, which we got uh, about three weeks ago. You know, so we just launched our first offering um, this past week or, um, on last Wednesday. And it's a Magic the Gathering card called a Black Lotus that's being offered at $45 a share or $90,000 market cap. So essentially, you, you kind of went full circle with this. You went from more of a traditional finance backgrounds to then crypto and through crypto got the idea of like fractionalization tokenization and stuff and now you're doing kind of a crypto inspired idea but through more traditional uh sec backed routes without without having like a, a need for a token but still kind of keeping in the the spirit of things by a lot of fractionalized investment in in this collectible right yeah, definitely. And it's wholly possible that one day we go back to sort of embracing or uh, converting sec the securities that we're, you know, that we're offering into tokens. Like that's very possible. Uh, you know, there's some great benefits like liquidity piece and cross-border and, and things like that. But right now, you know, we are you know kind of going about it in sort of the traditional way until I think the SEC and sort of globally sort of opines on um, how legal uh, some of this stuff is. Makes sense. So you're trying to build a foundation on less shaky ground than a lot of crypto companies have been willing to do. Build a, build a strong foundation and then eventually maybe you'll pivot back to crypto one day if, if the law catches up. 
Yeah, I mean, we care about building the car and, you know, the blockchain roads are still kind of being paved. You know, we are, we'll, we'll drive our car on those roads once they're nice and smooth. That's a good analogy. I'm going to steal that for the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, so explain to me how the financial structure of this works exactly. So you, you've got this Magic the Gathering card and um, I'm a Pokemon guy myself. So I will say that you guys maybe picked the wrong game, but I, I won't hold that against you. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you have, you have this Magic the Gathering card and you make it into a publicly traded company. How does, how does that work? What does that mean exactly? Like what do you, and what do you mean by a publicly traded company? Because a, car, a sure. card in my mind does not mean publicly traded company. Yeah, totally. And there's, a, I guess, a little bit of a common disconnect there. I guess the way that we bridge that ultimately is, um, you know, there's an actual company, let's say Black Lotus LLC, that exists solely just to own the card. And it's the LLC that's being split into shares. And then uh, we securitize through a Reg A Plus offering, which is um, essentially allows both accredited and unaccredited investors to be able to invest in these assets in our collection. And it's a, otherwise a very similar process to the stock market. But the publicly traded company piece is ultimately that the card is a company, and that's what people are investing in. We are not sending um, you know, slivers of cards out to investors or anything like that. It's simply uh, backed by the card itself. And so, you know, we hold a mini IPO for each of those companies, um, you know, where we can offer those shares to the public. Um, as I mentioned, both accredited and unaccredited investors can take part. And, you know, after that IPO closes, there's a holding period where, you know, there's no transactions for those um, shares. And then uh, we intend to hold monthly periods where people can trade those shares as well in a bid-ask marketplace. And so it's completely free for people to buy, sell, and trade. And our primary revenue model will ultimately revolve around a premium subscription product that we're developing. What will the premium subscription model mean? Yeah, so if you're familiar with like Robinhood and ultimately Robinhood Gold, you know, we're developing like pro trading tools, access to the collection, early access to the you know new IPOs that, that we're launching with, the new collection assets, and then ultimately giving people the opportunity to buy exclusive collectibles through our platform because we're able to know, you know, or get a good sense of like what kinds of fandoms people are a part of. So essentially just a tool that gives you more access, more perks, more of everything. And then those fan club experiences that I, I mentioned before. Right. So being able to meet with artists and um, you know visit the collection and things like that. So you have to create a company for every single one of these collectibles. That's interesting. So what happens when you have, say, like hundreds of items? <laughs> Do you have hundreds of companies that you've created essentially? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and they, you know, I'll have to file the tax returns and stuff like that. So, you know, there is some operational overhead, but, you know, we think that, you know, we can certainly mitigate some of those costs at scale. Have the Magic the Gathering folks, like, ever anticipated something like this happening with, with their cards? Like, which is one little shiny card has become an entire company. I think you'd be surprised. I mean, there's a lot of people that have been talking about how to do this for a while in, in the fandom, but you know, whether or not they've taken those steps, I, I don't think they have. But yeah, we've definitely gotten like uh, you know big reactions from uh, people in the fandom. Yeah, I mean, I don't even play Magic the Gathering, but I'm a nerd in many other things, so I kind of just got a little excited that this is a possibility. <laughs> Well, I mean, the um, Pikachu so, Illustrator card is, I think, the most valuable Pokemon card, and that's something that we have our eyes on and bring onto the platform. Very cool. So, so how does this differ then from uh, from tokens? You mentioned a little bit before uh, you've got tokenization, you have more of a liquidity. Um, what are the other big differences that you think are important? 
Yeah, I mean, for the most part, tokenization and securitization are more similar than they are different. Both kind of create this tradable financial asset that's backed by something, in our case, high-value pop culture collectibles. But while we generally manage like the ledger for our securities in like a centralized database, the digital tokens are obviously maintained on the blockchain and decentralized. And so while I think there's a potential benefit for global liquidity, but at least in the US, like sort of the jury is still out on how you know those non-fungible tokens or security tokens might be handled. Like I said, I think they're more similar than they are different. But with respect to the latter, it seems like there is a tendency to kind of want to skirt a lot of the existing securities frameworks, you know, and, and call them sort of by a different name in terms of like tokens. Right. And yeah, there's been lots of attempts to create new categories for these tokens. And in some places they have created new categories. But um, nationally, I guess it's still being deliberated. It's a, it's a bit risque, unfortunately, to, to be in that space, as, as we both know. So what collectible would you absolutely love to get your hands on? Like, if you could, if you can get one, like, anyone in the world, which one would you want to get more than anything? Hmm. I mean, we really wanted to kind of start off with, like, the Holy Grail, at least in, in Magic cards, which is this Black Lotus card. You know, if it was in the Magic fandom, I would say, like, we'd love to take that one step further and get the original art for the uh, the Black Lotus, you know, which we know the owner of, and um, they're asking a you know a couple million dollars for it, uh, and we'll sort of work our way up to that. I think from like comics, I mean, there's certainly like Holy Grail books as well. You know, Action Comics number one is over five million dollars, six million dollars for a single book, and that's the first appearance of Superman. So those are things that you know certainly stick out as things that I would you know would be amazing to even be in the presence of. So yeah, I mean, I think you know like the rest of our team we just love geeking out on just um being around this stuff and being part of the fandom and we get a lot of energy from that yeah i mean i i can only imagine the 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 moment if you guys like get one of these things and you just open the case <laughs> just for like 10 seconds with like gloves and just get to look at it and hold it and then make sure no one's breathing and then put it back <laughs> right maybe you don't even open it i guess i don't know yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the individual stuff, most of this stuff is slabbed uh, in, like, tamper-proof cases, like hard plastic cases. And uh, these are one-way things. Like, once it's sealed, you'd have to destroy the case in order to get at the card or the book or whatever. Yeah, but, you know, as they're, as they're slabbed and graded and authenticated and stuff, they're essentially relegated to art. And ultimately, like, you're investing in, you know, a piece of art history in some ways, but of fandom. Art history of fandom, which, given the the recent upward trend of um, Marvel movies and, and superhero movies that have just like been taking the movie industry by storm. I mean, I can only see these becoming more and more valuable as, as time goes on. Yeah. I mean, uh, a good example is like, for instance, the first Wonder Woman appearance, you know, that I think was probably like a $50,000 book. And then after the movie came out, you know, that it sold for like 930 grand just because like, not overnight necessarily, but you know, you had a global fandom of of new new fans, like of millions and millions of people, if not more than that. And so, um, you know, the the success of the superhero film genre has definitely propelled the value of these books and the interest in sort of the original stories and the collectibles around their favorite superheroes. What's your favorite superhero? It's a good question. I mean, I think growing up, you know, I was really big into the X Men. I think, uh, you know, the movies didn't make such a great showing, but uh, I think now that they're being absorbed into Disney, I am really excited to see where they take that. I, gosh, who would be my favorite? Um, you know, Wolverine's always a favorite. Yeah. Um, Even though, like, you know, compared to the rest, he's not very strong. He's just, like, 
He's just always so angry and cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, some of the stuff that, that was really popular isn't really popular now, and some of the characters that weren't that popular were kind of obscure, like super popular now. Really, the MCU has changed everything for superhero films. It's been amazing. Yeah, I mean, most of the characters that are in the MCU I've never even heard of before the movie came out. Like, I mean, I, heard, I think I've heard of Iron Man more from the song than an actual comic book character. And uh, Doctor Strange, I had no idea who it was. And then all of a sudden the movie comes out and you're like, oh, this person's awesome. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they've created a worldwide fandom. And I think that now that Disney owns everything, I don't see, I mean, I can't speculate on like the prices, but I can't imagine, you know, there will be any any slowdown in like the growth of the fandoms of these uh these superheroes yeah and these franchises it's it's only gonna be it's it's, it's gonna i wonder if it's gonna get to the point where like 80 percent of the movies in the box office in like 10 years are just gonna be superhero movies and there's been like nothing left of like the other movies save for one or two slipping in here and there well i mean i think a huge proportion of box office sales period right now are you know superhero films so it's getting there yeah Ever your like romance com romantic comedy is like gonna have to involve superpowers for anyone to like even go see it like like any any a genre they're just gonna like throw a superhero in it just so they can make some money off of it. <laughs> so uh, what would you say you're like the nerdiest? What's what's your like nerdiest thing? Is it is it Magic the Gathering or is there something you're even nerdier about? I mean, I'm a huge fan of Magic the Gathering, um, but I think like if there was one sort of group like I would more associate with even over magic would be like uh, Star Trek so like as a Trekkie and a uh, huge huge fan of uh, Star Trek and uh, yeah uh, well uh, pretty close but yes live long and prosper is the the Vulcan salute there yeah. <laughs> um, but you know I mean I guess nerdiest thing like as unpopular as uh, Jar Jar was in the uh, in the first episode of Star Wars I watched that film like seven or eight times in the theater because a friend worked on lots of the visual effects and so um and i actually enjoyed it so yeah i, I like how you to qualify that you're like you're like oh it's because my friend worked on the visual effects like as you're, as you're saying that to all your friends as you like go watch it for the sixth time you're like no no no, don't, don't worry about it and, and meanwhile you're just like just crying like every time jar jar comes on screen you're like yes i love you <laughs> i love you jar jar right <laughs> it wasn't i that movie gets a lot of uh a lot of hate yeah. sometimes but it wasn't it that bad come on yeah i i thought it so. I mean, I don't know if it was my youthful innocence, but I, I actually did like that movie a fair amount. I mean, I don't I only realized how annoying Jar Jar was, I think, only after people pointed it out, to be honest. Like, I didn't think he was like, I didn't love him, but I didn't like hate him either. And then when people just like, I don't know, it's like it's like this group thing that happens. It just kind of like extremifies your opinions, you know, where it's like I was like, eh, I, don't, I don't like him, but I don't hate him. And then it also turned into like, <laughs> you know, I hate that guy because you just hear it from everyone else, you know. I mean, it does have probably one of the most epic battles, which was uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan versus uh, Darth Maul. So uh, Dude, that's, that's that, legendary. Honestly, that was my, I think, my favorite lightsaber fight. I'm going to, like, I think in all of Star Wars. Save for, like, um, have you ever seen the Knights of the Old Republic cinematic stuff? The video game, like, I never played movies? the game. I, I never played it either. I just watched YouTube videos. But, like, they were straight up, like, one of the most, some of the most glorious lightsaber battles I've ever seen. And I was like... How are these cinematic interludes in the video game better than half the movie? <laughs> but I guess that's why you're Trekkie. So is there anything else that we ha haven't discussed yet that you want to let people know about? I mean, we've just been kind of talking about nerdy stuff half the podcast. And about 
publicly traded companies the other half so <laughs> sure yeah i mean um you know we just launched last week got you know lots more fun stuff to come in, in as part of the collection and uh, we're also planning a series of as i mentioned fan club experiences and even a gallery where people can visit uh, the collection regularly and uh, so i'd love to encourage your listeners to visit mythicmarkets.com and uh, tell us what kind of collectibles you'd like to see so if you want Joe to put up your favorite Pokemon, comic book, whatever else that you can possibly fractionalize, then uh, hit him up. Do you want to give people a way to contact you or you just want them to go to mythicmarkets.com? If you want to get in touch, uh, I'm Joe at mythicmarkets.com. Um, there's also uh, contact information on the website. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. You heard it from here, folks. Well, Joe, it's great having you and uh, great seeing you again, even if it's over over skype i uh it's always a pleasure to see your face i'm flattered live live long and prosper live long and prosper (laughs) thank you for listening to a bit cryptic podcast as a full disclosure we did receive financial support for this episode a bit cryptic podcast is hosted by line leon dang du and myself jeff peterson show notes are by our editor-in-chief dang du website is by sammy toucan and his team at pack surge media Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep it cryptic.